He's just had his name taken a few moments ago there by the German referee. They can't run offside here. They've got to make sure they stay onside, these Barcelona players. Oh, what a grandstand finish to this game. Away off the uh, head of Adrian Rabio. Intense pressure now on the Paris Saint-Germain defence. It's Neymar trying to feed it through. It's a stretch and it's in. And I can't remember the last time I saw something like this. Extraordinary scenes at the new camp. Sergio Roberto, the substitute, is the hero of the hour. And it is the greatest champion I know that Barcelona is kind of like the uh, Yankees, maybe, of international club soccer. Uh, but I don't hate them. But I hate Suarez, so I don't like them. But I don't hate them. That was a cool comeback. Uh, welcome to Season 7, Episode 5 of the Sportscasters. We've been kind of battling uh, to get on the same page. Don's starting a new job. Obviously, I have a baby. Don has two babies. One of them broke their arm. Had to have surgery. We've been kind of up going on an every other pace bi-weekly, and we might stick to that, but we're trying to get back to weekly as quick as we can, and we're also trying to get back in the room as quick as we can so we can do a normal show where we do three things, and we talk, and we interact a little bit. My brother Anthony is coming over from New York City soon, and when he does, I assume that he'll fill in these gaps on the days when me and Don just can't get together. I'm sure Anthony will just jump in and be more of a regular co-host of the show, be my guest. When Don isn't available, he's always wanted to, so I think that will probably happen. Do have a good show today, though, uh, and I won't babble for long. We'll get to it quick. We have Jeff Passan uh, from Yahoo Sports, and we talk about the World Baseball Classic, and we also talk about spring training and the start of the baseball season. Uh, Jeff, of course, the first person to ever appear on this show, and it's his 13th appearance today, so Jeff will be on in a minute. Uh, after that, in between the interviews, I look back at a book club book of the month from past, and it's too bad we already did this one because afterwards, uh, former book club book of the month author Blake J. Harris is uh, with us to talk about his new podcast called Origin Stories, and I admire uh, Blake because he's new to the podcasting world and he's already making money doing it, which isn't easy. Uh, and Blake will talk to us about a new book he's working on about virtual reality. He'll talk to us about origin stories, the podcast, and how it became part of Stitcher, and how he became a part of the How Did This Get Made world, if you're a fan of that podcast. Um, And also we talk a little bit about the new Nintendo console and why he isn't playing his yet. Uh, And then I'll be back for one last thing to kind of uh, plug everything and finish up uh, the episode. So that's a quick update. Uh, Hopefully the next podcast, whether it's next week or the week after that, will include me and Don or me and someone. We get back into a regular groove here. But in the meantime, we're still doing some really great interviews, uh, and I think you'll like the two today. So let's take a break, and we'll come back with Jeff Passan.
All right, our next guest is from Cleveland, Ohio, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. He's the lead baseball columnist for Yahoo Sports, and he's the first ever person to appear on this podcast. He's making his 13th appearance today. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Jeff Passan. What's up, Jeff? What episode are we on now? Well, we are in... We debuted the day after Cam Newton won the national championship. So that was uh, January of 2011. We call this Season 7, Episode 6. It's a little, almost 300. Wow. That's pretty incredible, man. Yeah, and, and still nobody knows like it's a thing. <laughs> so it's, it's amazing how... To, <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how invisible we've managed to uh, to manage to be in in such a, in a long period of time. So we're really proud of it. Just really proud of it. I I, I feel like this is one of those things that uh, it's like an artist who only uh, you know their work is only posthumously realized. Right. I think you're gonna have to die. Yes. And then people are gonna look back and be like, oh, this was good. Well, what you yeah, know. Good it's it's funny you say that too because when I almost died, we did get quite the bump when I returned. You know what I mean? Like the news of my almost death did, you know, create one of our bigger growths. So I may have to try that strategy and, and, strategy again. Yeah. And who was and, and who who was the guest right after that? You know, I don't even remember who the first guest was. Well, I know my brother and one of his teammates were on because it was af- just after they won the national championship, like a week or two after that. So I know we had two of them on. But I don't remember who like the main guest was. I have to look back at that. Probably you or someone like you, like you or Jenkins or Deitch. Actually, I think it was Deitch. Actually, now that I say that. All right. Yeah. There you go. Yep. So, what's up, man? How are you? Uh, I couldn't be better. I'm about to go uh, watch some World Baseball Classic. Yeah. Well, I, I have like a love. I have like a love hate relationship with the World Baseball Classic. Uh, I, it's like all of me wishes that they could get the best players, but at the same time, it's like it's competitive baseball, and the players care about it. And if you have that, uh, you know, that feeling that this really matters among the players, I think the quality of the games uh, accordingly makes up for the the lack of involvement, and in they're really interesting cool story that can come out of it. Yeah, and I guess we've already sort of had one before I even knew that this thing was going on. With the... Uh, Israel? Yeah. Right? I mean, that was... That, a, was, that, was, that, that, was one, that was one of my favorite columns I think I've ever written. Yeah, not, right. Not that, it was, not that it was great or anything, but getting to write like a 2,000 word inside Jew joke was just the best for me. Like, I mean, I was busting out all the Yiddish that my grandma and grandpa taught me growing up, and just, you know, some of the quotes there about Jewish moms and, like, a little Passover pun. I mean, it was, uh, I, I had a smile on my face as I was writing that. You know, I totally get it because I'm not a big soccer guy, but I'm a huge Italian soccer fan in all the big tournaments because probably the first soccer tournament I ever watched was in 94, the one that was in the United States, and I watched it with my great-grandmother who had come from Italy long before I was born, and I couldn't understand. 
I, I was shocked at how upset she was when Roberto Baggio sailed the ball over the net. I mean, she was in tears when they lost. And uh, ever since then, I've been a big fan. And I've been shocked to see the outpouring of support. I mean, I'm trying to figure out how to say this properly. I don't know if there's the right way. I guess there's a lot of uh, people I follow. Uh, are Jewish, I guess. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying that. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say. I don't think there's anything wrong with saying it like that. And they're very people are pumped. It's pretty cool. It's a cool thing, I think. Yeah, there's there's just this this tribalism again, no pun intended, uh, among Jews, where uh, I think, especially those of our generation, it's not it's not a religion. It, obviously, it is a religion. But our connection to it is not religious. It's right. much more cultural. Mm-hmm. And and see, and like seeing a group of Jews uh, doing cool things, and this is undoubtedly a cool thing, and and not just doing cool things, but doing unexpected things. Uh, they're just an easy group of guys to root for. You know, they take religion or uh, you know ancestry aside. This is mainly like a group of AAA players, right. and they weren't they weren't facing the best pool by any means. You know, the Korean team uh, is not what it once was, uh, and they're missing a lot of their their bigger name guys. Uh, you know, the, the Taiwanese team just frankly isn't very good, uh, and the Dutch team has advanced a couple years in a row, or a couple tournaments in a row now. So. I'd say they were the favorites in that pool, and they have the most big leaguers. But, uh, you know, this team got together, and uh, they bonded. And I understand that uh, chemistry is uh, a, an exceedingly intangible thing, but I think when you have a group of guys that travel together internationally, uh, you know, they went, to, they went to the homeland together, and... They visited Jerusalem and the Western Wall and Masada and and saw what their heritage was. And I think that's the type of thing, not always does, but is capable of strengthening a group and bringing them together. And these guys really get along, and they've got a chip on their shoulder, not because they're Jewish, but because, honestly, they've just been overlooked by the baseball establishment for the majority of their careers. You've got eight guys with big league experience, but the only one with a, a really substantive career has been Jason Marquis. Uh, you can say maybe Ike Davis, but the rest of them uh, have really been nothing more than up-and-down guys, and uh, they're probably never going to get a crack at the World Series, and so this is their World Series, and they're treating it that way. Yeah, they kind of remind me maybe a little bit of the Greece soccer team that won the Euro that year. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. Look yep. at you! Look at you with your European soccer knowledge. <laughs> I told you I like the big tournaments. I do. I do love the big international. I tournaments. do think you know what, man. That's I'm. I'm the same way when it comes to soccer. I will not watch for two years. Then uh, either at the World Cup or, or you know the Euro Championships, I will not miss a game. Yeah, and as much as I do love rooting for Italy in the men's competitions, I also love re- uh, rooting for the U.S. women's team too, uh, because. It's it's one of those times where you can go on Twitter and everyone's on the same team, and uh, you know it's fun. To, they're a really fun team to root for. Our women's soccer team. They're usually yeah. Competitive I was going to say and, they're they are they are generally you know especially now that Hope Solo's gone they're generally a very likable likable team. yeah and yeah. maybe 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 they're likable because they're so good. 
Uh, I think there's an element of that to it, but uh, the, the, there seems to be a genuineness there as well. So let me ask you this about the World Baseball Classic. As the guy who wrote the book The Arm, would you ever let one of your pitchers play in this? Yeah, I would. Okay. Uh, I, I, I don't see that there's a, uh, a strong correlation between guys pitching in the WBC and getting hurt, at least nothing that's statistically significant at this point. You've got plenty of anecdotal things, but you wonder if that's because a pitcher was going full tilt when he wasn't ready. I think in order for a guy to participate, I would make sure that he starts his throwing program two or three weeks earlier uh, than he might have otherwise, and I'd probably... Uh, not have an innings cap on him during the season, but look to give him rest when I could. But as far as greater good goes, uh, I think that this tournament does have uh, enough substance to it to warrant, uh, you know, giving up a pitcher for spring training and letting him go out there and compete, uh, especially if he wants to. I mean, I'm never going to twist a guy's arm to do it, but if he's really gung-ho about it, I don't see there being any harm there. Uh, I told you how I love to root for the United States in competitions like this. It, it's very fun to, uh, as divided as a country as we can be on a day-to-day basis sometimes about certain things. It's always fun to come together and cheer for our teams. So tell me why this might be one uh, that could be very successful or unsuccessful, I suppose. They've got a really good lineup, and uh, I think when you've got as many star position players as they do, even though you know Mike Trout isn't there, for example, uh, they, uh, I think they've got the goods to hit their way into the finals and to the championship, frankly. The, the question with them, uh, as it has been in past years, is going to be starting pitching. And, and what chafes me about the World Baseball Classic is that the United States could come out with a rotation of Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer, uh, Madison Bumgarner, and Noah Syndergaard, uh, or Chris Sale, or Justin Verlander, whoever it may be, and they could go out and absolutely dominate the tournament and put on a show. Right. And the fact that the, the fact that the you could you could argue I'm sure there are other guys, but those are probably the six best. You know, David Price could be in there too. Uh, among the six or seven best American pitchers, and none of them are participating in this. And you saw what Noah Syndergaard said, too. Essentially, I'm not going to win a World Series pitching in the uh, World Baseball Classic. I, I think there's a Venn diagram where those two things do cross over. Uh, but I understand his sentiments at the same time, too. His loyalty is to the New York Mets right now. And maybe that changes if the U.S. wins this time around. And if guys who are on the team go back and are evangelists, their teammates, and say, you know, this was the most fun I've had since I was in college playing baseball, uh, if, if people hear that, then suddenly they're going to want to participate. There's going to be a total FOMO situation there. But as it stands right now, the United States uh, hasn't even made it to a finals yet, and this is the fourth World Baseball Classic. Right. Do you think that there's something about baseball – especially if you grew up playing it and dominating it, it's not necessarily something you do regularly for country. You know, like if you, even if you compare it like to hockey, for example, you know, there's a under-19 tournament that is one of the most exciting things on the hockey calendar that is under-20 tournament. Super important. 
you know, the NHL players are the players are the reason that NHL players play in the Olympics. And I mean, Alexander Ovechkin has even already said that if the NHL pulls out of it, he's going anyway. And I can tell you now that I believe him. Um, Yeah. It just doesn't seem like playing for your country isn't as important as a baseball player growing up, maybe as it is in other sports. And maybe that's a reason why uh, winning a world baseball classic. And I guess also the fact that it's kind of a manufactured thing uh, maybe isn't that important to these guys? I think it's more the manufactured element because okay. there are a lot of Team USA opportunities for young baseball players. Like, if you're if you're a 15-year-old who gets selected to Team USA, that's about the best honor you can have as an amateur baseball player. And, uh, you know, amateur baseball is more the issue, I think, than actually Team USA itself. There's just not a lot of excitement around amateur baseball. You're not seeing, you know, Team USA's international games. Uh, You're not seeing the World Cup of Baseball uh, on anything other than MLB Network, whereas, you know, high school basketball games and football games are are being and have been broadcast on ESPN for a decade now. Uh, College baseball, you know, people care about it for what, a couple weeks a year, and right. even during the College World Series, the the traction that it gets pales in comparison to, like, a Mac basketball or football game. So, we're, you know, we're looking more, I think, at the, uh, at the failure of amateur baseball to prop itself up to that level more than we are the failure of USA baseball uh, to make playing for your country a a legitimate and desirable thing. That makes a lot of sense. Who, who do you think wins this thing? Who's your who's the favorite? Ah oh, man, I mean, I you know, I'd say Team USA, Dominican Republic's really good. Venezuela, I worry about their pitching. Uh, Japan uh, always is a threat. So I'd say those are the four favorites at this point. The Cuban team just is not. Uh, what it once was because of the the many defections that they've had. Uh, you know, Korea, uh, which I think in years past would have been a threat and has meddled before, got knocked out uh, in the first round. The thing about international baseball, that there's just not that many good countries, man. Right. Like, baseball is not played readily uh, across Europe, you know, outside of the Netherlands. Uh, you know, maybe you have some uh, some kids who come from Italy and get signed every year, but uh, outside of that, there's really not an expanse of players coming from Europe. Uh, there's no baseball being played in Africa. Uh, Australia has sort of, ever since like Dave Nilsson came along, been uh, stagnant as far as baseball growth goes. There hasn't been that superstar who's come from Australia. Uh, and then you've got the United States, Mexico, Dominican Republic, Venezuela, and Cuba. And, guy, you know, you have Panamanian players come along every now and again, Colombian players. There are a couple of Brazilian players who are worth uh, keeping an eye on. There's a kid named Eric Pardino, for example, who's uh, throwing in the mid-'90s, and he's 15 years old. He's going to be 16 and sign this uh, this summer on July 2nd. So he's an interesting guy, and kid in uh, the, the Mariners organization named Tiago Vieira, who was hitting 103 and 104 this past year. He'll be up with them at some point. So uh, with them and Paulo Orlando 
and a couple other uh, guys of Brazilian descent, you know, they have a chance. But uh, in a country as big as Brazil, it's still a really, really small group that plays. So baseball, you know, the point of the World Baseball Classic is to make baseball exciting in some of these other countries. Baseball is really far behind in places like China, uh, where they, they just don't have a footprint right now. Uh, whereas basketball, because of Yao Ming and because of uh, their efforts there, uh, they, they really have the market cornered hmm. on athletes there. And baseball is trying desperately to get into these places. I just don't know, honestly, if it's working. I mean, in the Dominican Republic and Venezuela and Japan, they're nuts for the World Baseball class. But is that enough to help it survive? And is this the best method to do so, or would it be better to take all the money you're putting into the WBC and funnel it toward organizing bodies and give them the tools that they need to grow this grassroots instead of trying to brute force it with a tournament like they are? I I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I also know that this tournament's been around for more than a decade now, and we really haven't seen a whole lot of substantive change. Yeah, it's not that different than hockey, actually, with, in terms of the amount of teams that can actually win in a hockey tournament. You know, an international hockey tournament, yeah, you have yeah. United States, Canada, Russia, uh, Sweden, and Finland. And then, and that's about it. Yeah. Five teams, really. And then some combination of... I mean, check, check. Check, yeah. Check, check Republic's usually pretty good. But that's been split into two teams. And, and, and you know, since 1998, when they won the first NHL... Uh, participated Olympics tournament, uh, the Czech Republic and Slovakia divide has hurt them as the time has gone on. So um, the sportscaster here with Jeff Passan, uh, at Jeff Passan, of course, on Twitter. Uh, The NCAA basketball tournament, the bracket comes out this week, which always makes me think about opening day every time I print it because I know it's the last thing that has to happen (laughs) on the sports calendar before opening day. Um, So I ask you, what's left in your... Uh, reporter's notebook, what questions do you need to know or are you waiting to have answered uh, before opening day, if any? Oh, God, before opening day. I, You know, I've been doing this almost 15 years now, and I've learned that baseball really doesn't start to matter until about June. And don't get me wrong, I like uh, I like opening day, and I love the fact that it's 162 games in the season is as long as it is. But the the questions we're not going to know the answers to until a couple months into the season because I just don't think you can make value judgments on on players to that point. You don't know whose breakout is real. Some guy's right. going to come out and he's going to hit eight home runs in the first two weeks, and we're going to be like, "Oh my God, where did this guy come from, and can he sustain it?" and that's just not a question I can answer until until June. And, uh, you know, my, my larger questions, like I, I'm very curious to see how the Cubs and Indians both uh, come back from the World Series last year. Uh, I think the Cubs should be enormous betting favorites right now, but it's baseball, man. And we haven't seen the dynasty since the late 90s, you know, 2000 Yankees. There, there hasn't been a team that's won back-to-back World Series since then. So uh, seeing how the Cubs react and seeing how the Indians, with a healthy Carlos Carrasco and Danny Salazar, 
uh, and Edwin Encarnacion now in the lineup, and the growth of Francisco Lindor and Jose Ramirez uh, and others of that uh, ilk who have room to get better, uh, the, the leap they make, uh, I'll be very interested to see whether that is a sustainable thing. Uh, there are favorites in both leagues, though. I think we can say, you know, that the the Nationals and uh, Mets are going to be the teams in the, the National League East. In the Central, it's going to be the, the Cubs and the Cardinals and maybe the Pirates in there. The National League West, to me, is, is maybe the most intriguing division of all because I think that uh, the, the Rockies are the darlings of, uh, you know, the inside baseball fan. I think the Diamondbacks have a chance to be a lot better than people realize. And then you've got the Giants and Dodgers. So it's going to be a super intriguing race for me. Uh, American League East is, you know, aside from the Red Sox, I think there's potential for all four of the other teams uh, to either be playoff contenders or just, you know, like 70, low 70 win teams. Uh, in the Central, to me, it's Cleveland and, and nobody else. Maybe Detroit's got a chance. Maybe Kansas City's got a chance. Uh, and out West, I'm not as bullish on Seattle as just about everybody, including uh, a lot of the scouts and executives who I trust. I just feel like there was a rearranging of the deck chairs there as opposed to a, a, a true leap forward improvement. So you've got the Rangers and, and my team to, to pick in the American League is the Astros. I think they are uh, top to bottom, if not the best team right now, uh, then right up there. And they've got the capital to go out and trade for the starting pitcher, whether it's Jose Quintana or someone else that they really need. You said something really interesting to follow up. You, you mentioned how you're really curious to see how the Indians and the Cubs come back from the World Series. I'm really interested to see how the casual baseball fan enters the season after that World Series. I mean, it was the most buzz I could remember in and around a World Series. And I know part, I know a large part of it was because of the story, a story that we don't have anymore. You know, it was a unique story in the, in the sense that it, 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 it doesn't carry over. They, they won it now. I mean, it does for the Indians, I suppose, their gap. But obviously the, the big story last year, uh, the reason Joe Buck was so excited to call that World Series, the reason you were so excited to write about it, was the once-in-a-lifetime, at least ours, uh, story, or maybe you can even argue twice in a lifetime because of the Red Sox, uh, but uh, the story of the Cubs and their gap. That's gone, and I wonder how the casual baseball fan, do they want to stick with this team anyway, though? Are they? Did we breed a new generation of, of fans last year, uh, even if it's just um, you know Cubs fans who are going to want to watch this group mature and find out what the first uh, champions in Chicago defending champions in Chicago, uh, react. So I think that's that interests me a little bit. You? I think there's no doubt that the Cubs, uh, there, there's going to be a new generation of Cubs fans because of this. Because they're a pretty likable team, man. Yeah. And they have a chance to do some pretty incredible things over the next half decade if they can keep that core together. I mean, Chris Bryant's going to be there uh, another five years. And... Kyle Schwarber is going to be there at another five or six, yeah, I think six years at this point. Uh, or no, he's got another five. And, uh, you know, Addison Russell, same thing. And Anthony Rizzo's under long-term contract. I mean, they've got just a ton of talent there. And if they can keep that together, they can do really, really special things. I mean, we're talking about a team that has a chance 
to be a legitimate dynasty. And seeing a dynasty in sports these days uh, is, is not uncommon. I mean, we've seen it with the Patriots. Uh, I think in, in basketball you can call it a LeBron dynasty because of all the championships that he's won right. in Miami uh, and now Cleveland. In baseball, though, it's just not built for, for dynastic teams. So the fact that we could be looking at one right now, uh, to me, is, is a really intriguing story. Is there going to be Cubs backlash? Um, is it not going to feel the same the second time through? What I do think is we can look at the Red Sox and the fact that they've won three championships uh, including that first one in 2004. And while they're not selling out every game at Fenway anymore, uh, I still think that the, uh, the the number of Red Sox fans out there has grown significantly and that uh, the region that, that they had captured even before they won has hung around and stuck with them despite the fact that the, the carrot of that championship uh, and the desire to be there and see it when it happens uh, simply isn't there anymore. You know, something that fascinates me in all sports is first overall picks, and I like Major League Baseball first overall picks because they got the cool one dot one, the one one thing going. You know that cool aspect. Yeah. Of it? yeah, yeah. And I know we've talked about them before. Will there be any new one ones making an impact in Major League Baseball this year? Because I think you got to go back to 2012 at this point. Uh, for to find one in, oh. that's making a difference. So is there any of the last four uh, that might have a chance to make it? God, you need to give me names because I'm old. Okay, and I, I got I it. Forget very easily. I mean, Mickey Moniak last year was a high school kid. Uh, he is he's three years off. Best case scenario. Okay, so he's uh, Mark Appel. I, be, I believe was 2013, right? Right. Yep. Mark Appel was 2013. Uh, I, I haven't heard a good thing about him, honestly. Uh, he's in the <laughs> Phillies organization now. He'll, he'll be a big leaguer, I think, just because of his pedigree. But the stuff has regressed significantly uh, since college. And that's, I mean, I was talking with my nine-year-old yesterday. We were talking about the Cubs, and uh, I, I was telling him, you know, Chris Bryant was actually the second overall pick. Uh, Houston went with Mark Appel uh, 1-1. And, and he was like, Chris Bryant was available and somebody didn't take him? Like, he was offended by that. And, and, and I sat there and I literally patted myself on the back saying, Jeff, you're, you're doing a good job raising a sports child. That's awesome. Um, That's a great story. So, yeah, so, uh, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, uh, that, that with Appel. Uh, I'm trying to think who in The other the two 14, would be... 14. Aiken is 14, and Swanson is 15. And Dan, Dan Spies, well, yeah, you know what? Well, yeah, Brady Aiken, Brady Aiken's not going to be up for three years, uh, at, you know, bet, at best. He was down in, like, rookie ball last year, had Tommy John surgery. Dan Spies, Swanson definitely will make an impact this year. The question with him is just how big of one is he going to make? Uh, there are scouts out there who believe Dan Spies, Swanson uh, has a, uh, a Jeter-type presence about him and that he's going to be the new Chipper Jones there in Atlanta. And there are also scouts who think he's going to be a Mark Cotte type of number one, uh, Mark Cotte type 1-1, one, one, where uh, he's going to be a good, serviceable major league player 
uh, either may make an all-star team or two, uh, may have a few, you know, like four or five win years, but never is going to be uh, the dude. And that you want a dude with that first overall pick. And right. if you don't hit on it, I don't care how weak the draft class was, that is a missed opportunity. It was a smoke in four years from 2009 to 2012. It was Strasburg, Harper, Garrett Cole, and Carlos Correa. It's a nice run. Yeah, yeah I mean, that's a nice run. And, 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 and Correa, Correa definitely was not a, uh, you know, a, a no-doubt 1-1. I mean, a lot of people thought Byron Buxton was the better player in that class. Uh, Buxton still got a lot of talent, but... Uh, you know, as much as you want to slag the, the Astros for picking Appel the next year and Aiken the year after that, uh, you got to give him credit for, for nailing the Correa pick. Yep, now that a, one. He, he's a true, he is a true franchise shortstop and uh, is, is better than I think uh, a lot of people expected him to be. You know the first, like, 1-1 one, one bust that I, like, knew was a giant bust was? Was, because I'm looking at the list. Uh, and I looked down in 1991, Brian Taylor. He, I remember, like, because it was the Yankees who picked him, and I just remember thinking that Brian Taylor was going to be. I think I had probably had his rookie card, and like I had it in like five, you know, five plated glass case that it's going to make sure it didn't oh, yeah. scratch because he's going to be such a stud. And I don't think he was. Did, yeah, 90, 91, 91 tops future stars, right? Yeah, oh yeah, I had that thing guarded with a, a separate alarm, I think, for it. Um, is yeah, that... if you, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm guessing you never saw my story on Brian Taylor. <sighs> I don't remember it off the top of my head. I may have read it, though. I, 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 I wrote it in my, well, you were probably like 12. Uh, I wrote it in my first year at Yahoo, so this was back in 2004. Uh, and, uh, yeah, go take a look at it. I don't know if you, I don't know how the hell to find it. Just type in Brian Taylor and Jeff Passett and maybe it'll pop up on Google. I don't know anymore what's still there, what's floating around the internet, but, uh, it's, it's a sad, sad story, man. It really is a sad story because he was going to be so good and he hurt his shoulder in a bar fight and just never recovered. Damn. Damn. Well, you can find Jeff on Twitter, at Jeff Passon, of course. And Yahoo, he writes words there. And I still think The Arm uh, was one of the best books I read last year. And in a long time, it's one of my favorite baseball books. I can see it from here on the shelf. And I think it's one that will always be relevant. I think it has a long shelf life. Um, so if you haven't got the item I hope yet, so. and, yeah, and the, and the paper, uh, the paperback edition will be back with, uh, will be out rather within uh, the next month or so. So uh, oh, beautiful. if you want something more portable and yeah. uh, less expensive, I urge you to uh, go check it out. It's, it's it doesn't have a new chapter or anything like that, but it definitely is updated uh, compared to the original version with. Uh, what Todd Coffey is doing and the contract Daniel Hudson ended up signing and where some of the other uh, smaller characters are. I, I, it was very edifying when, when John Lester and Trevor Bauer started a World Series game against one another last year. That was a, a pretty damn cool moment. I still get sick when I think about that contract sometimes with Hudson. You know, he got $11 million this offseason, man. I'm not feeling too sick for him anymore. Yeah, yeah, I guess, but... Man, 
I don't know. Leave it for the book. I, 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 I listen. I know exactly what you're saying. But <laughs> this was one of those. Uh, I guess this it does. Was one of those stories with a, with a happy pretty happy ending. ending. Right. No, that's fair. That's fair. All right. Last thing: Is Syracuse going to make the tournament? Woo. I'm going to say yes. Okay, I'm going to say yes, too. I, they I, made it last year. They have a better resume this year, so I think they'll make it, too. But go ahead. Yeah, uh, I think that they've had enough big wins to uh, to gloss over their losses, and I think the ACC is so good that, I don't even, I mean, what's the ACC going to get, nine teams this year? Yeah, I was going to say eight or nine. Potentially? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, yeah. eight or nine, I mean, yeah. I mean, the, the ACC is really, really good. Uh, you know, I think Gillen and Wider are very exciting players. Uh, and I know they, listen, I understand that they, they go on resume, but I'd like to think that uh, that somehow will factor into the resume as well, that it's not going to be entirely uh, an objective operation. And... Uh, I'd like to see what they can do. I think they they are well capable uh, of beating, you know, let's say they're an 11. I think they can beat a 6. There's no doubt about it. But uh, I also think that they can get blown out by 30. It's just it is a very helter-skelter team, and you just wonder which version of them is going to show up. It's so interesting that they haven't won an ACC tournament game yet because they were so great in the Big East tournament, like consistently for decades. You know, and yeah, that's it's interesting to me. I was thinking about that today. Someone tweeted and said they haven't won. I'm excited. I'm, ex- I'm, ex- I'm excited to see how Kansas does because Kansas is. Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, they're sort really of my good. adopted team, having right. uh, living in Kansas City. Just I see them all the time, and and it is a fascinating team. I mean, they have absolutely no depth whatsoever, and they are the team. I'll come out and say this right now. They're the team that's going to be down, like. 22 to 15 with like four minutes left in the first half against the 16 seed. Mm. Interesting. They're that, they're that heart attack team that just has balls. I mean, they have balls for days and, uh, I respect, uh, their ability to come back. I just wonder the better teams they face, whether they're going to be able to continue playing these heart attack games. Do you have a team you envision putting on the championship line when you fill out your bracket? Um, no, I haven't. I haven't figured that out yet. Yeah, uh, it's not going to be Gonzaga. Um, you I, know, I want to pick that eight nineteen against Gonzaga really badly without knowing who it is. That's like uh, been in my mind yeah. the last couple of days. Like, I love, I love, I love Villanova's toughness, and I like North Carolina's. Depth. I worry about them not having a guy. My uh, and and I asked. I was asking my kid. Uh, you know, I'm, I was like, I'm going to be back next week in time for brackets. We're going to have to fill him out. Or are you going to take KU? Because he's a big KU fan. Mm. And he's like, you know, I, I'm just not feeling it. And Ooh. I said, Well, who are you going with? And he said North Carolina. And I'm like, They don't have a star. He said, What about Justin Jackson? He's averaging 19 points a game. Wow, this kid like, rules. Yeah, <laughs> this kid is awesome. <laughs> Yeah, he's now you should you should have him on. I uh, should, yeah. 
Sounds he, he like knows fun. far more than I do. <laughs> that, that's great. He's pulling out. I wouldn't have been. I wouldn't have had that stat at the ready. That's that's impressive. I want to see his bracket. You have to. You have to text me his, his final four. I'm curious. Oh, he he kicked the shit out of me last year. Like mm. he crushed me. I think he had. I think he had all the final four teams except for Syracuse. Um, yeah, I think he. Uh, I don't think he picked Villanova, but I think he had him in the finals. Uh, yeah, he he filled out a very good bracket last year, and he tends to go a little chalk. And from what I recall, last year was a you know aside from Syracuse was a pretty chalk bracket, right? Right. I think they say you so, should go chalk uh, as much as you can. I think like uh, who's the guy from? Uh, of course. Five three eight, you know the statistics people. They say, don't try to get cute and figure out who the twelve team is going to be. Just pick all the fives. And, yeah, yeah. You know, you know what though. You know what though, man. Like that's the fun of a bracket. It is. It? Like, don't you, don't you get? What do you get more joy from? Do you get more joy from hitting on the fourteen, beating the three, or do you get more joy from having you know twenty six? Teams correct in the first round. No, I want to pick that fourteen because then I can act like I knew it. Like I, you know, I just felt, exactly. I just felt like with their senior depth at guard. I just, I like, I liked them. I just liked them. I, I told you guys, you know, that's what I want to happen. And, and I know I'm full of shit, and I just guessed. But you know, I like to have that kind of bravado after winning a game like that. You know, like last year when Yale won. With, last year when Yale won, I was, you know, like. Best team to come out of the Ivy in years. I knew it. I knew it. I, had not, I didn't pick him because my brother went there. <laughs> but, all right, Jeff. You have a safe travel across the state of Florida the rest of the way. And uh, enjoy the baseball classic and the start of the season. And I'm sure we will catch up uh, sometime around June-ish when we can find out. I can ask you these kinds of questions in June. So, is this team for right. real or did they just play you know bad teams the first two months? You know this, the 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 usual June interview that we have. We'll have it in a couple months. I, I was going to say I, yeah. I look forward to the same uh, the same rote bullshit you throw me every year. <laughs> All right, thanks, bud. See ya. All right, I want to thank Jeff Passon for being on the show today. Uh, Jeff, of course, the author of the Book Club Book of the Month from last year that we mentioned, The Arm. And he was also the co-author of a book called Death of the BCS, which wasn't necessarily part of the book club because we didn't have it then, uh, but it was the book that was the catalyst for the start of the podcast. And the reason why Jeff was the first ever guest is because he was on to promote that book. That's how I set up the interview anyway. Uh, today we're going to look back at a book that came up during the next interview uh, with Blake J. Harris, and that is a book called "Those Guys All Have the F- Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN," and it's by James Andrew Miller and his partner at the time, Tom Shales. And it's kind of got a cool story behind it, which is why I picked it out. They were crazy about this book when this book was getting ready to come out. It was an embargo. And it was an embargo, I think, almost right up until the time of release, maybe two or three days before. And I got on the list somehow, despite how guarded this book was, to get it when it got out of embargo. And then I found out that the day or two after was the day that James Andrew Miller had time to speak to me. So I literally had to get through this book, which is almost 800 pages, I think. Yeah, the paperback, I have the paperback here in front of me, which, of course, it was the hardcover at the time. 
but it's 785, 795. Yeah, it's 800 pages long. And uh, I had to get that read in a really short amount of time, I remember. And I wanted to prepare for the interview because it was about such a relevant topic to this podcast. You know, ESPN and the personalities there. And, you know, actually... The interview went fine or whatever. I got the book read, and I don't know if there's any great story there. James Andrew Miller's been on the show a few times. And I've tried to get him on a few times since, unsuccessfully. Uh, but, you know, this book has been really great. Like, the first time, like, Chirico was on, I used it to look up some research. It's almost like a reference book now for any time we get someone on ESPN for the first time. Uh, Rich Eisen, Trey Wingo. And it always seems like maybe we're not getting the people this book is about because I end up looking them up. And there's, you know, six or seven lines about them. Uh, But those guys are all fun, despite being very long and very slow at first. The first, you know, 125 pages is about the business of starting ESPN and satellites going up into the sky and people thinking that it was a cult. I mean, just this crazy kind of story of business and getting started and how small ESPN was and why they ended up in Bristol. And then the action kind of picks up for the next 700 pages, and it's about the people and things that have been on ESPN. Uh, Like a lot of these books, in the heart of it, it is a business book surrounded around the story of ESPN and the business of ESPN. It gets into the purchase by Disney and contracts. and So there's a lot of business in it, but it's an amazingly researched and Incredible book in the oral history style, of course. So it's in the voices of the people who shaped ESPN. Um, And it's definitely worth it. ESPN, uh, those guys have all the fun inside the world of it. James Andrew Miller, if you get the paperback version, it says it's expanded with new interviews. Um, So that's that. Uh, All right, we're going to take a break. We'll come back uh, with the author of... One of our all-time favorite books, a book club book of the month, book of the year winner, Console Wars, uh, by, which was by Blake J. Harris. And Blake has a new podcast called Origin Stories, uh, which is actually in the uh, premium section over at Stitcher. So let's find out what's going on with that and Blake. All right. Our next guest is a writer and filmmaker who is based out of New York City, and he's the author of Console Wars, which was not only a sportscaster's book club book of the month, but also a winner of the prestigious book club book of the year award, and uh, he is nice enough to join us again today, making his fourth appearance. A warm sportscaster's welcome to Blake Harris. What's up, Blake? Uh, Not much. Thanks for having me back. You could also add to the little bio that uh, sportscasters helped start a friendship between me and John Pesa, the author of the game, the baseball book. So, oh, yeah, John. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, John was a great, he's a great guy. He, he, uh, he's one of the cool – we put him on a, a special list because he found us to promote the book. And I always try to work even a little bit harder for those people that came to us because he came to us and said, hey, can you help me with this book? And, you know, we did what we did for your book. And, um, yeah, really nice guy. That's cool. I had no idea. That's really cool. Yeah, awesome. Um, how are you doing? We are doing great. My little uh, 
my little daughter's on the ground here. She's rolling around and drinking a bottle and playing with her toys in case she gets a little mouthy. Just so you know, people. Uh, she, she's part <laughs> of the right. she's part of the show the way my dog was back in the day. So, although he's still <laughs> part of the show, so now it's the both of them yipping in the background. Yeah, but now I'm doing good. Uh, it's freezing in Buffalo today. It's like 900 mile per hour winds or something out there. It is, it's so windy. I went out to get the mail, and there was like a um, a sign for some political candidate on my lawn. It's like, man, where did this thing blow from? The elections were, you know, I don't know. <laughs> like, man, this thing, it's windy out. You got one of these blowing in your yard, so, yeah. It was like blowing from the future. It was yeah, exactly. So I was excited to catch up. I saw a really cool tweet. Some guy tweeted you, and I think you retweeted it, and he said that uh, console Wars has now moved into his category of he can't think of anything to buy a person, so he just like, hey, here's this cool book. Let me buy this. Oh, yeah. So that, yeah, that was really nice. And, uh, you know, that was, he, you know, he heard about the book or kept hearing about the book on the How to Get Made podcast, which I'm sure we'll talk about it a bit. But, uh, you know, I just want to thank you. You said this is the fourth time I've been on. And, uh, I, you know, I the book continues to sell it. Uh, several hundred copies every weekend. So almost been out for three years, and that's because of people like you and and people like the guy who's going to buy it as a gift when he has something else good to get. So you know, I really do appreciate it. Like I don't know how else to express it, but it means the world to me. Yeah, and I was going going there next. That you're everywhere, either on my apps or in my feed with this. <laughs> how did this get made? Origin stories. I'd never heard of it before. You're, you're an innovator, maybe. It, it might be the first time I've heard of a podcast spinoff. Um, and I guess there's a, <laughs> there's a podcast called How Did This Get Made, I think, if that's cor- the correct title. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, and it's basically a podcast about uh, movies, like maybe Mr. Nanny was an episode. I'm just using that as an example with Hulk Hogan. I don't know if that was actually an episode. And there is. They, yeah, and they examine, like, how the hell did people in Hollywood spend money to make a movie with Hulk Hogan called Mr. Nanny. So this podcast has now spun off to How Did This Get Made, uh, which you host. So tell us about the podcast, and uh, and then after you tell us about it and what it's about and how you became involved, we'll get into Stitcher Premium and all that. All right, cool. So there's a podcast called How Did This Get Made, with a question mark at the end, that's hosted by um, actor, comedians, Paul Shear. Jason Mantoukas, and June Diane Raphael, and probably a lot of your listeners, if they don't know Paul and Jason, they'd probably recognize them. They were on, they were stars of the show The League on FX. Mm-hmm. Uh, Paul was Andre, Andre Nozick, and Jason was Rafi. Um, so, you know, I was a big fan of... The, I, I love The League, so I found the podcast. The, the podcast has been going on for, I think, almost six years now, predating me completely. Um and and it's what you said, except with one caveat. They're uh, wait, are we allowed to curse on this show? Yes, yes, yep. All right, so so their their show was much more like how the fuck did this get made, like Mister Nanny, and then they would do like a like a ninety minute or two hour uh, show. Sometimes they do live shows to basically just go through the movie and be like, what the fuck was this character thinking? Who? Why would like a writer write the scene? You know, what was the actor doing? Like basically just pointing out all the silly, ridiculous things in stupid movies that we either take for granted or that deserve to be scrutinized. And so a couple of years ago, uh, after Console Wars, I reached out to Paul Shear and I said, hey man, I, 
I love your show. It's hilarious. But you guys actually never answer the question of how did this get made? Like, like who is saying, hey, yeah, let's make a movie with Hulk Hogan, uh, babysitting kids. <laughs> like, whose idea was that? Um, were people just thinking, like, this is a cash grab? Or they actually think, like, wow, we're really going to break new ground here? And, and, like, what goes into the mindset of that? Or, you know, they, they typically do um, bad movies or, like, flops. Or, or they do movies like Fast and the Furious franchise where it's just, like, over-the-top fun but, but ridiculous. Um, and so Paul was like, yeah, you know, you're right. We don't, we, know, we don't actually answer, like, why would someone do this? And uh, I said to him, like, you know, I would love for you guys to add that to maybe just have, like, a, a written companion piece for every episode. I volunteer to, like, do the first one. But even if you don't want me, like, get someone else, because I, I would love to read that. And, yeah, he, you know, he had read Console Wars. I was like, oh, no, like, I'd love to, let's try it out. And so we started with the movie Top Dog, which is a, a Chuck Norris classic or anti-classic starring Chuck Norris and the dog <laughs> partner, uh, you know, a lot like that movie canine. And, uh, and I ended up interviewing like the animal trainer and the editor and the producer and a bunch of people. And it was really fun. And I did an oral history. And so for the past, uh, year and a half, I've been doing oral histories or conversations like long form conversations with the directors or writers and just talking it, you know, it, it always evolved into conversations about, Hollywood, and, you know, they're kind of, I always hope that they're kind of educational in a way, like, you know, kind of learning what not to do, and, uh, you know, it, it's been immensely fun for me, because uh, you never really know where the conversations are going to go, and a great example of that was, recently, they were, you know, one of their upcoming movies was Surf Ninjas, uh, the uh, 1993 movie with, uh, you know, that, that some of us loved, especially those of us who like seeing Game Gear in movies. Um, and so I, I called up, I got in touch with the screenwriter, and, you know, sometimes for film, screenwriters hired and just basically worked at the whims of the studio and the commission. But in this case, it was like an original idea, so there's a little bit more passion and ownership behind it. And so I was expecting, like, a silly little story about how this writer came up with, like, oh, this dumb idea, or maybe it felt really important to him. But... But I totally didn't expect, uh, though I probably should have, because his other credits include Passenger 57 and uh, The Hurricane with Denzel Washington. So he's like a legit he's writer, legit, not like yeah, yeah. a hack. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and we get it, you know, we talk about his background and how he got into business, and he tells me this uh, like 45-minute long story about how the first movie he directed back in the 70s turned out to be a front for a money-laundering scheme by the mob. And, like, just tells me the craziest story I've ever heard. So, um, you know, concurrently, Paul and I had been talking about launching a spinoff to uh, How Did This Get Made, or basically just a place where people could hear my interviews um, in podcast form. And uh, this kind of presented itself as the perfect example, because I ended up speaking with the writer, whose name is Dan Gordon, uh, for over three hours, which, again, was like I expected. I told my wife, hey, I'm just going to go make a call for 20 minutes, but it turned into this long thing. And, uh, and we put that, yeah, and so we, we released it as the first episode of How Does Get Made Origin Stories. And uh, in the past, we had done a couple of special episodes, like when I had a really juicy interview. Um, like there was one with Mel Brooks, and there was one with Brian Taylor, who directed Gamer. Um, so we were always kind of planning to do more of them this year after I finished writing my book. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. 
Now, how did the relationship with Stitcher come about and the Stitcher preview uh, program and that decision? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, Paul Shearer is very active in the podcast community. He, in addition to How Does Get Made, which is has been one of the most popular shows for five years running, um, and, you know, he also produces a bunch of shows like uh, Bitch Sesh with uh, Casey Wilson from Happy Endings and Daniel Schneider and and, and that, you know, all these things have been with Earwolf, um, where How Does Get Made is produced. And uh, Earwolf has, has a relationship with Stitcher. So, they, they, you know, the conversation was kind of us all getting together and figuring out the best way to do this. And uh, we ended up deciding to do, um, you know, we're going to keep releasing, like, the best episodes through the How Does This Get Made feed, like we did with the Dan Gordon interview talking about <laughs> Uh, inadvertently working for the mob. And then uh, we're going to put the rest of the interviews, like we interviewed the two kids from Surf Ninjas, and that's going to be available on Stitcher Premium. Yeah, we also have a relationship with Stitcher here, and it consists of me emailing them and begging them uh, to possibly send out uh, some push notifications because we have a good guest that week. So it's a very, <laughs> it sounds like a very similar relationship that those guys have. Uh, and I also send uh, chocolates to whoever... Uh, does it and hope that they maybe remind me six months later or remember me six months later. So yeah, it sounds very similar. Um, well, let me ask you, you know, <laughs> I, obviously I'm no stranger to interviewing people. Like I think that's something I'm good at, but, but podcasting is really all new to me. And, and even just, you know, my interviews, it's different when you're interviewing someone and all that matters is to get, is to get their answer. And it doesn't matter what I say, if I sound stupid, whatever, versus now kind of doing it in a way where it should feel a little bit more like a show. What what can, what advice can you give me, having done a podcast for several years? Well, I don't know if maybe you'll be limited in terms of choices, but I know that for me, you know the the one, I guess, thing we've tried to live by on this show is it's just about stuff that is interesting to me. I mean, yes, in a way, it's a sports show, but uh, it doesn't have to be about sports, obviously. And what it really needs to be about is something that's interesting to me. So. When we book guests, look for guests, I just look for people who I'm interested in talking to. And then when I talk to them, I talk to them about things that I'm interested in. And I hope that uh, the listeners and I end up having that in common. What I'm interested in is mm-hmm. what they're interested in. And thus, the interview ends up being uh, a bunch of answers to questions they had or things that they were interested in. Um, and that's kind of how like our relationship started was I was really interested in uh, console wars and finding out about the story of Sega and Nintendo and the battle that defined a generation. Uh, so I reached out. So that's kind of been what we've always tried to do here is just stick to that because, and I think I learned this from Howard Stern who like will turn down these huge interviews and you're like, well, why would he turn that down? And the reason is because he's just not interested in that. And he doesn't think he can do a good in- interview about something or with someone mm-hmm. he's not interested in. Um, so we've always tried that's to... That's a great point. Yeah, that's so we've always... Button. That's always just been oh, our, our ground... Yeah, that's just been our ground zero, and we've all, always just kind of went from there. And then the other thing is is to not be afraid of being what we are. You know, and what we are is a really small, independent podcast that's uh, made in my spare bedroom with my daughter whining on the floor next to me. You know, <laughs> and, and we don't try to hide that or run away from being that at all. And I think that there ends up being a certain charm to that. You know, people have people who've been who've been around in the show 
uh, have grown up with my dog, uh, Colston, and now they're going to grow, <laughs> you know, they're going to do the same with Paula. You know, she's, she, Colston's been barking in the background for five years. You know, I, don't, I rarely get a tweet from a listener that doesn't say, you know, hey, is Colston chasing the mailman kind of a thing. You know, and now those <laughs> tweets are starting to shift to, you know, did you feed Paula before the interview uh, or is she basically in the background screaming the whole time? You know, so, but we don't run from that. I mean, that just is what we are. And I think that that's important too. So those are the two most important things that I've tried to live by, I guess. Thank you. I appreciate that. Those are both helpful and applicable to us as we're kind of figuring this out. Yeah. And I think that you'll have to, I think, take into the into account that what you are, and to some degree, is a show that people are paying for or a show that people are um, using as a reason to justify paying for a larger service. You know, so I think that will be important to recognize that and to uh, make sure that it's still important to them. You know, it's and, um, you know, what it is about why they're spending that money um, or why they used you to decide to make that leap will be really important to figure out, I think, because then uh, you'll be able to satisfy that curiosity or need and that will um like i think probably there's a lot of people signing up right now for this service because they want to be ahead on that uh simmons uh podcast right Uh, right 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 so i think yeah so they're probably getting an influx of people right now so when that's over because i think it's only like six or seven episodes um why are people gonna what what is going to keep people stick around and i think your show as being a feature show on there you know, might be the answer to that in part. Yeah, that's a great point. And, like, frankly, just between you and me, no, between <laughs> like, you know, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with that. It's not in a bad way, but the idea of, like, asking someone for something that they're used to getting for free. And, and you know, that's the reason I said not, like, it's a good thing is because that means that I do have to up my game. Where, I, you know, prior to this, because a lot of the interviews, I had, there was no plan to air them for people. It was just recorded in my home, but, you know, I did an interview yesterday in studio, so we're going to up the production quality. And uh, and, and I guess the, the one other thing I should just note, because it seems it's very important to me, is, like, what a good partner Paul Shear has been in all of this, like, whether it was two years ago just saying, like, yeah, let's try it out, or now, um, kind of just, he, he's, he's very much of your mindset to kind of, um, like, be who you are, not put up a facade and, 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 you know, through that, like, discover what the show is. Like, originally, we didn't know if we were going to do articles or oral histories, and then it started as oral histories, but I got really busy with the book, so it turned into just, like, you know, like, 6,000-word conversations with people that were, like, what you said, were not necessarily... We don't really stay on the track, but we kind of go all over the place. But uh, but it's an interesting time with podcasts, because they're so popular, um, and, and places like Stitcher Premium are now starting to charge for uh, a special service, and you know, you there's there's different ways to do it. There's like the where is Richard Simmons podcast where the you know what you're paying for is early access versus exclusive access, which is what our show is. Um, right, so, or maybe commercial free but, access. A bunch of different reasons you might do it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, but it's really fascinating. Like, because one thing I didn't realize though, it should obviously be like a like a duh, is that. You know, first of all, I'm contacting these people, and in 90% of cases, it's a movie that they probably would rather not think about. You know, it's it's uh, it's Mac <laughs> and me. It's, um, not necessarily a career highlight, usually. 
Yeah, it's like Simply Irresistible with Sarah Michelle Gellar. It's like, it's, it's all these ter- movies that killed a lot of people's careers. The Avengers, the one that doesn't have Iron Man in it. Um, so, so, you know, I guess I didn't realize how much I was really asking these people to talk about their most embarrassing creative moment. And, and then also, even to do so, when they first hear about this, they kind of assume that I'm trying to make fun of them. Or, you know, like the show will be like, like to talk about how they messed up, which is not at all what it is. It's really just a celebration of like the process and, and what did go wrong in an analytical way as opposed to an emotional way. In fact, I try not to see the movies ahead of time so that I can talk to them as if they created The Godfather, and then afterwards I'll see it. So, um, yeah, it's like it's just the, the actual content is so much better than I ever would have expected, and I guess that kind of makes sense. I guess there's always going to be more. I guess the stories about behind the scenes making of for terrible movies is always going to be more interesting than the ones that were successful and went smoothly because there's drama and and, uh, so, and failed expectations. Yeah, I mean, I'm an old school wrestling fan, like a huge '80s wrestling fan, and I've been listening a lot to the. There's this podcast with Bruce Pritchard, who was in one of uh, Vince McMahon's right hand man in the '80s and nine in early '90s, and. Uh, Recently, they did on his podcast, one of the episodes was about No Holds Barred, um, the movie that uh, was the very first WWF at the time movie creation and would probably uh, fall under the category of, you know, why the fuck did this get made in a lot of uh, cases. And it was fascinating to hear about some of the decisions they made. Like, I never really thought of this, but it's so funny if you think about it. No Holds Barred is a movie... That stars a guy named Terry Bollea, who plays a character named Hulk Hogan. Uh, but the movie doesn't star Terry Bollea. It stars Hulk Hogan playing a guy named Rip. <laughs> Which is the most yeah. incredible decision to me. Like, how did they get to this point where they decided, all right. It's like, and they made this point on the podcast, uh, and this was a great example. It's like if in that movie with Julia Roberts that James Gandolfini was in, they build it as Tony Soprano and Julia Roberts in whatever that movie was. <laughs> you know, that's yeah. – yeah. And that and, yeah. and the reason they did it is because nobody knew who Terry Bollea was. And a movie with Hulk Hogan as Rip was a lot more interesting than Terry Bollea as Rip. And I wonder <laughs> – I was uh, thinking about how that could turn into real life. But no, uh, you've been mentioning here and there about the book, the book. And I was lucky enough to read the first chapter of the book. And – as for now, what's been announced is that you're writing a book about virtual reality. So what do you want to tell our listeners who know you as a guy who writes books and uh, wrote one of the most famous books to ever be talked about in this podcast in the sense that you know anyone who loves our book club loves the books as a part of it. And yours was, as I said, a book club book of the year winner, not just one that we featured. Uh, so what, oh, thank you again. what can they expect? Like what – is this road down virtual reality like? How is it similar or different to what they know about your work as it stands now? Uh, well, I'll, let me tell you a little bit about how I ended up writing this, because I think that'll answer some of those questions. And Absolutely. I'm happy to answer any more. But so, you know, I wrote Console Wars, which was, I'm 34. It was like very much the story or the behind-the-scenes story that I didn't know about my childhood and about this thing that, that was such a big part of my life and so many other people's lives that are the same age. Um, you know, this evolution of gaming, this battle. And, 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 and so I actually, I remember talking to my manager, my literary manager, after I finished Council Wars, and I was like, hey, man, it's, I was like, it's kind of sad that I'm never going to write a book as good as Council Wars again. 
And he was like, no, 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 don't worry. You're going to keep getting better at writing. We're going to keep getting books for you. Like, and I was like, oh, no, I, I hope so. That would be great. I'd love, you know, I, I can't wait to keep writing. But I just thought I would never find a topic that had such a cultural value and, you know, kind of had this convergence with technology, uh, pop culture, entertainment, big personalities, and all that stuff. Like, it was a perfect mix. And, uh, and then I tried the DK1 which was the first development kit headset by Oculus, the company that makes a virtual reality product. And I tried that at the uh, E3 video game trade show in 2014. I was actually there to promote the console wars and it just blew my mind. It just, you know, my, my, when I took off the headset, I thought like I was absolutely wrong. There's definitely a better, you know, if I can write about this and I can get the access I need, this, this virtual reality is going to have as big of an impact or more on uh, on on our society, on uh, you know, just on everything. And Let me jump in real quick. I just want to comment on that real quick. You know what this remind this story kind of reminds me of, like how James Andrew Miller probably felt after he wrote the Saturday Night Live oral history. Like he probably felt like, oh man, I'm just going to be the Saturday Night Live guy forever. But that's cool, and this book is awesome. I'll never find anything as good. And then he stumbled upon ESPN, and now he's right. not only the Saturday Night Live guy, but he's a Saturday Night Live and ESPN guy, you know, and it's kind of like your Saturday Night Live book is Console Wars, and now the Virtual Reality book has a chance to be your, those guys have all the fun, to make an analogy. I was just thinking of that while you were telling the story. No, that's a great point, because that's, for one, I mean, one, it's a great problem to have, like to say, like, you know, this is, like, at least I'll be known for something, even though my future work is not more popular. That's fine. You know, as long as I get to keep doing future work, that's awesome. But the James Andrew Miller one is a good example because I remember thinking after reading, those guys have all the fun. Like, man, what's this guy going to write about next? He's written these two books that are like must-owns for <laughs> anybody interested in pop culture. Right, and he finds and, and I was Like, I, I kind of was a little surprised when he did the CAA book, yeah. which is, I haven't read it yet. I'm staring at it and I'm excited to read it. But, but it does feel like smaller in scope, not, you know, not... I don't mean that in like a derogatory way, but right, it's not no. the kind of thing where I know what you mean. Everyone, everyone wants to like when I tell you, oh, this is a behind-the-scenes book about fill in the blank, Saturday Night Live or ESPN. Your eyes kind of light up, like, oh man, I wonder we're going to finally find out how PTI started or what Belushi was doing. But but you don't have that with CAA because most people don't know the agents. I don't I don't know the agents. Um, so you know, it, it, it sounds like there's a lot of great. Um, movie making and deal making stories in there, so I'm sure it's awesome. But it's kind of that situation of like, you know, it, it's just not the same scope. Yeah, it just the it changed from having two books that everyone knew why they wanted to read it to writing a third book where James Andrew Miller had to convince people why they wanted to read it. Uh, that the you know that there wasn't just this inherit like with console wars. I know why I, I want to read about Nintendo and Sega. Boom, done. I'm in. You know, and I think Saturday Night Live, same way. CAA, you got to convince me a little bit. It's almost like come, you just coming at it, maybe in promotion, um, or as you're building anticipation for it, just kind of in a different direction. Yeah, and and, I, and frankly, I'd be a little bit um, more anxious about my new book if if one of the main characters, if I didn't have as one of my main characters this kid named Palmer Lucky. You know, in the same way with the CAA book, if there was like a one-sentence line line where you could say, like, you know, this is the craziest story about how this guy invented the idea of agenting and whatever. Like, all right, maybe I'd be more interested. And so for the virtual reality book, it, you know, at the beginning of the story, 
focuses on um, the origins of Oculus and, and its founding, and it, it starts with a uh, 19-year-old kid named Palmer Lucky, which also just feels like the name of a science fiction book character, and uh, he's been working on virtual reality where, where, while most of the rest of the world has given up, because we all remember its failures in the 90s, and, uh, and he creates this headset that, that, that starts this hype train for virtual reality. So, you know, having a very colorful, young, uh, vibrant, and now rich uh, figure, you know, he ended up selling the company to Facebook for almost $3 billion a few years later. So, you know, having that through line and having that exciting character is hopefully a way to, to bring people into the story in the same way that I have, you know. I, I always thought that one value that I brought to console wars, and I try to bring it to this book too, is to is to look at it as kind of an outsider. Um, you know, console wars was very much about the larger things like the development of characters and the marketing and, and the people of these companies than it was about, um, you know, it's like game secrets, like where to find uh, the hidden key or how certain very specific things were created. Um, like certain levels, you know, it was very, it was much, it was for, it was for a broader audience. And, and I might've told you in the past, like in my mind, the goal was always to do, to write a book as dense as Disney war, the book by James Stewart about behind the scenes of Disney and that read as quickly as Da Vinci code and, uh, and to do so, so that somebody like my grandma could, you know, appreciate the story and find a way into the video game industry. And so again, that's what I'm trying to do with virtual reality. It was, it's, it's much harder to write a book. Um, that as it's happening, then 20 years after the fact, um, the access is obviously a lot harder to get because these people are, well, for one, they're actually doing it, so they're pretty busy. And two, there's like trade secrets and stuff like that. And then uh, it also just to make sense of it. So, but, but it was really important to me because when I had that first VR experience in 2014, I thought, you know, in whatever small way my book can help, and, and it being a book that is accessible to any reader, um, you know, any, anything that could help get people to try VR, that, that, that's why I want to do it now. Because I really do think that this thing is, is incredible and, ha- and has the potential to be even more incredible. I think that you know, most of the industry thus far has focused on gaming, and rightfully so. It feels like the next step, um, you know, instead of playing games, immerse, 3D games on TV, you can now like, be immersed and step into the game, literally. But, but the other stuff that really blew my mind, like the cinematic experiences, I remember, did you ever see the movie, or, or are you a fan of the Harry Potter franchise? Yeah, I've seen all the movies. Okay, so there's like a, a scene in, I think, the fifth movie, or maybe the sixth, where uh, Dumbledore uh, takes out a memory from his head and, and has like the 10 TVs where you can step into someone else's memory. And they go back and watch a yep. scene with like Marty Crouch, yeah, yeah, and 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 so I, you know, watching a, a cinematic VR experience, of like a, basically like a, like a VR movie, that's what it feels like. You're like it's like a first person perspective of somebody else's memory, and and that was just incredible to me. Like I, I was in the home of a Chinese family, and I really, my brain was tricked into thinking I was really there, and uh, and not only like in the moment does it trip you. But afterwards, like, I felt like I remembered my VR experiences in a different way than, um, you know, watching a television show or playing a video game. Like, I felt like I remembered it in this personal experience. So I think it does activate different aspects of your brain and neurons to create a memory in a different way. And, and that, you know, the potential for that is incredible with, with um, you know, social interaction and education. 
And, uh, and I'll just give one last example of, you know, one last easy to follow example that, that kind of blew my mind a little bit. And, and this is only step one was when I, um, I, when I tried the, uh, the Oculus touch, which is a hand controller. And, uh, I got a demo from a guy and he set me up and, uh, transported me to virtual reality and then he went into another room and transported himself and then we were in the same virtual room and though he was physically i don't know 50 feet away from me he was like only a few feet away from me in this virtual space and it and it really felt like i was with this other person and we played a little bit of ping pong together and uh you know it captures all the nuances in your movement because it's on your head so if you turn your head one eighth of an inch to the left the avatar moves that much so so it's very natural in the human you know it's not blocky movement that you're like oh obviously this is just a representation of somebody like even though we don't yet have the um technology to have it be photorealistic representations it, it, it's so human in the way that these avatars move and obviously are representing these people that it feels real and so if you think about that once again with like my grandma like instead of going to her house, so she's in New York City, so it's not too far, but, right. you know, if I can get her to put on a headset, and I put it on, and we just hang out together, and we talk, you know, it's, it's better than a phone call. Right. So. And grandma's always the right. one person you never feel like you see enough, you know what I mean? Because, you know, it's exactly. like, you know you have only so much more time, it's like, why am I there? More, 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 you know, so any way is better. Uh, <laughs> I, I got to read a chapter of the book, and um, I have so many questions I'm excited to have answered by it, so... Uh, the sports kids are here. We're finishing up with uh, Blake J. Harris, uh, who's nice enough to give us all this time. You can follow him on Twitter for an update about a lot of this stuff at Blake J. Harris NYC. And I want to urge you to check out BlakeJHarris.com, uh, where there is an HDTGM section that has a link to, uh, I don't know if it's every single one, but a bunch of the articles he talked about writing. Uh, for yep, the, yeah, they're all on uh, the, the articles you talked about writing for the How Did, Did This Get Made podcast uh, are linked there, so an easier way to find them. And then, of course, uh, Stitcher, if you want to uh, become a premium member there, you can subscribe to this podcast and to his podcast on there as well. Um, ours, of course, is free, but um, if you subscribe to his, boom, you can listen to both right on Stitcher, which I know a lot of our Android listeners do anyway. Listen on Stitcher. And, and, and just to say, like, you know, I always, even with consoles, it's always uncomfortable for anybody to say, like, oh, buy my thing. I always think of that, keep that cartoon, The Critic, with uh, John Lovitz, where it's like, buy my book, buy right. my book. <laughs> so, you know, anytime I, you know, or basically I, I don't like people buying something when they don't know what they're getting into. So I, I made it, it was important to me with consoles to put excerpts in a lot of places so at least people had a sense of what they were getting and, um, you know, and, and, and same here too. Um, you know, all those articles are available, and also uh, Paul and I have put up a bunch of the the origins or, you know, the interviews with Mel Brooks and Dan Gordon and Brian Taylor are available for free. So, you know, I, I, I'm i not asking you to spend money if you want to to hear more. That's great. But also just listening to How This Can Be podcast and listening to that episode, which is their second to most recent episode, um, you know, check it out there. Blake, last thing, let me get you out on this. Uh what do you got on the, the Nintendo, the new console, the Switch? What, are you, have you tried <laughs> it at all? Are you a fan? What, any thoughts on it? Oh, it looks awesome. I, I'm not playing until I finish my draft of my book, but everything <laughs> I've heard is very positive. Um, and, I mean, it's great. It's like I, I, you know, But I'm also biased. I love Nintendo stuff. I'm a proud owner of the Wii U, um, and I, 
every time I was going to go on a trip, I wanted to bring my Wii U with me until I remembered, oh, no, it's not a handheld, even though it looks like it is when you're within the vicinity of your um, system. So I think the Switch is going to be great. Um, you know, it, it seems like the, the most important, the best, you know, the most impressive side to me was that Nintendo seemed to have signed up a lot of third-party developers. You know, obviously, we know from console wars, they're pretty insular and not always the friendliest company to work with. So the fact that they've seemingly made a concerted effort to bring a lot of games and work with other developers, that's, that's awesome because they themselves always have the best games. So it'll just increase the library. Blake, thanks so much for doing this today. Uh, again, it's uh, one more time. I want to give everyone everything. It's uh, Blake J. Harris, NYC on Twitter, uh, BlakeJHarris.com on the website, which is a great spot uh, for the pieces that he wrote for the podcast. And of course, uh, Origin Stories is available uh, on Stitcher, the app uh, for podcast. Blake, thanks for everything yep. today. Really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to the book. You got me hooked. And uh, I can't wait to make it a part of our book club and to do everything we did with Console Wars uh, with Virtual thanks, Reality. Man. I'm really excited. So thanks a lot for the time today. Of course. I look forward to my fifth appearance. Have All a good right. day. Yep.
All right, I want to thank Blake J. Harris and Jeff Passon for being on the show today. Don't forget, you can find this podcast, all of our episodes on our SoundCloud page, which is www.soundcloud.com slash sports-casters. You can also find us on Twitter at sports underscore casters. You can find Don. He's at Don Lake Sports. Email us at sportscasters at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook. We don't use it much. The Lonely End of the Rink podcast is back again this week with an interview with a sportscaster's favorite, Kenny Albert. Look for that on the Lonely End of the Rink SoundCloud, which is soundcloud.com slash lonelyrinkpod. Uh, Twitter at lonelyrinkpod. And also email is lonelyrinkpod at gmail.com. All right, I just want to say a few things before we get out of here about the Americans. Return for season five. And it's that weird season when you binge a show up to current and now you have to watch it week to week as it's released. And it's a real change of pace. You're used to watching two or three a day. And that's uh, the the spot I'm in. I watched seasons one to four in like a week and a half uh, when the baby was first born. Uh, and now the show is back. And they did something really cool and really ballsy and really, I think, unique to them. The last episode of the first, the last scene of the first episode of season five, and this is pretty much spoiler free, happens with them. What happens is they go and dig a hole, and there's almost no dialogue, and it's about a 10 minute scene of them digging a hole with no dialogue. And they pull it off. I mean, it's just, it's a tense, awesome nine minutes and it's so unique to the show. I mean, if you think about it, you couldn't have 10 minutes without talking on like Seinfeld or any sitcom. It's definitely unique to like more of an action. I could see it happen maybe on like a 24 or a loss, but there's very few shows that could pull this off. And if you haven't watched Americans, man, is it good? I always heard it was good. I always wanted to watch it. Uh, FX shows sometimes aren't the easiest to catch up on, uh, but it was available on, I think Amazon Prime and that that the the video version of that has the first at least three seasons and I think I bought season four like on iTunes so I wanted to watch it so bad it's just it's such a great show uh, highly recommend it it's climbing up my pantheon of shows I'm also rewatching Sopranos right now which is number one I don't think Americans is going to get quite to that level but. It has all the ingredients. It's just such a, such a great world to get lost in. I just love it. Uh, FX, when they when they do something good, it's great. Um, like, like their show Fargo, which I saw an ad, returns in April sometime. So, I have to give it my finest recommendation, uh, The Americans. And Season 5 got off to a huge start with uh, the silent hole digging scene.
There's no point in direction We cannot even choose a side I took the old track The hollow shoulder across the waters On the tall cliffs They were getting older Sons and daughters Jaded underworld was riding high Waves of steel, of metal, at the sky And as the nails sunk in the cloud The rain was warm and soaked the crowd Before the dawn, they'll use up what we used. 